When I arrived in New England 16 years ago, I had no formal theological training. I came up here in 2006 to study at Gordon-Conwell Seminary on the North Shore. I never had a Bible class. I certainly had read my Bible, but I had no formal theological training. And I remember feeling a combination of eagerness and insufficiency in those first few seminary classes. I felt like a sponge. I wanted to learn as much theology and practical ministry as I could so that I could be one day a faithful pastor. I came hungry, wanting to learn, wanting to grow, wanting to be taught. You see, I stood in desperate need of skillful teachers of God's Word. And that's what I found at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. One of my favorite professors was a man named Gary Parrott. I had him for three classes during my three years of seminary. One on spiritual growth, uh, another class on discipleship, and then a third class on facing messy stuff in the church. A, church, uh, a class on pastoral ministry. We just kind of cover the gamut of thorny things that you can potentially walk through in the life of a local church. Gary Parrott was a skillful teacher. He was thoughtful. He was tender. He spoke truth to students in love. People just kind of gravitated toward him. Very pastoral, very approachable. A gifted musician and songwriter. He would often write hymns based on the class content that we were learning, and he would come with guitar in hand and sing them to us, knowing how music is a teaching tool. He's just an incredibly skillful teacher. He taught from a deep well of decades of ministry experience. Look back on my three years at Gordon-Conwell, and I see the growth that God accomplished in me, and I can attribute it to the role of skillful teachers, the role of teachers like Gary Parrott. Skillful teacher whom God used to shape me spiritually. And friends, this morning, what I want to investigate with you in the biblical text is how God uses skillful teachers to work restoration in his people's lives. God uses skillful teachers to work restoration in his people's lives. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 7. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Ezra 7 on page 393. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. There's several hardback black Bibles in the entryway on the bookshelf there. You're welcome to take one of those as a gift. This morning we continue in our sermon series in the book of Ezra called Return from Exile. Return from Exile. Let's read together. Ezra chapter 7, this morning we'll cover the first 10 verses, and then next Sunday we'll cover the remainder of Ezra 7. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Zeriah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked. 
for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The thrust of this sermon is that skillful teachers are required to work restoration in God's people. Skillful teachers are required for the work of restoration among God's people. We see here the essential role of a skillful teacher of God's word. Ezra, the scribe, described as a skillful teacher of the word of God. Ezra 7 opens up with these words. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the scribe, came up from Babylonia. What the author of Ezra does here with this phrase, now after this, is put his finger on the fast forward button and hold it there for some 57 years. The events of Ezra 7 are roughly 57 years after the events of Ezra chapter 6, when the temple was dedicated, 516 B.C., we pick up chapter 7, and we fast-forwarded a great deal. And what we see here is not the chronological purposes of the author of Ezra, but the theological purposes of the author of Ezra. He's selecting episodes to teach theology. And what he selects here is the narrative surrounding Ezra, the scribe, the priest, the skillful teacher of the law of the Lord. So the theological focus here centers on this question. Why did Ezra have to go to Jerusalem? What was the need? What was the purpose in this moment of Israel's history? Well, remember, they had been without a temple for 70 years, and we defined that period of being without a temple as the exile. What got them exiled in the first place was a defiance, a disobedience to God's law, uh, an ignoring of God's instruction. So what they are desperately in need of is a faithful instructor on the law of the Lord so as to not repeat that exile. So God raises up this skillful teacher, and he sends them back to the homeland of his forefathers, and he begins to teach and rework and reorder their worship. They needed a trustworthy teacher of God's word, a skillful shepherd, and enter Ezra, the priest and the scribe, the one from whom the book is named. Finally, we meet him in chapter 7. I want to organize our time in Ezra 7, 1 through 10, by drawing attention to four points of emphasis. Four points of emphasis here in Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Number one is the teacher's pedigree. The teacher's pedigree. We see this 
priestly pedigree of Ezra in verses 1 through 5. All these obscure names. After this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Notice here the author traces Ezra's lineage back to Aaron, the chief priest of Israel who was commissioned in the days of Moses. Why does the author of Ezra feel the need to trace Ezra's genealogy back to Aaron? What's his emphasis? To establish Ezra's credibility. For it was the raising up of improper priests who didn't have the pedigree that also led to Israel's exile. Teachers who did not know the word of God. So the author here is saying he is a priest in the lineage of the chief priest Aaron. All the way back, traces it. He's authorized. He's commissioned. He's got the pedigree. He's establishing Ezra's credibility. Not only does Ezra's genealogy establish his credibility, it also provides continuity for God's people. Like we mentioned in the the seemingly boring passage in Ezra chapter 2, where we have this list of returned exiles, I read that in its entirety to us, and you may have wondered why. Because that list, that record, provides continuity to God's people's past. It connects them to the Lord who had gone before them, working in the the lives of their forefathers. And they likely felt disconnected in exile, wondering if the God of their past was working in their present. And so by connecting Ezra, the present priest, with Aaron, the past priest, it's continuity of God's people, old to new. The same God who was faithful then is with them, and he'll be faithful now through Ezra the priest. So it's establishing credibility and it's establishing continuity for a people who needed a sense of continuity, a connection to the past. They've been in exile. They've been without a temple. And they're still a little bit wandering in in that land. They need a teacher to come and clearly instruct them in the way of worship of the Lord God. By realizing their heritage They're connected to their past, and they have clarity on their present because the same God that was faithful then will be present and faithful now. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord. This is a a, a key application for us. The past is important. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we would do well to remember his past deeds of faithfulness, wouldn't we? In fact, it's spiritual amnesia that leads to spiritual disobedience oftentimes and anxiety and a misunderstanding of who we are and who we're to worship. But if we can remember the deeds of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord, we're set up to take faith here in the present. I want to encourage you to build in strategies, disciplines of remembering in your life. 
ways of having continuity to the Lord's work in your past. Don't forget what he's done and how far he's brought you and how good he's been to you. Build in strategies and disciplines of remembering that you might call to mind how good God has been. We are a forgetful people. How has God been good to you? Keep a prayer list and revisit that prayer list and literally check off with a thank you, Lord, as he answers prayers. Just reviewing a, a prayer list of 2022, January, oh Lord. We have a situation with our kids' ministry. We'd like to have more space. And there's some things going on at the downstairs tenant that we're not entirely sure of, but it doesn't seem good. Please, please intervene and work. And I revisited it Wednesday of this week, and I just was moved because I just said, thank you, Lord. You've provided, you've moved, you've heard our prayers. Now, I understand all, not all of our prayers are going to be answered in, in that timing, in that fashion. Some of them we're going to pray till the day we see Jesus face to face, and that'll be the answered prayer. The loving face of the Lord Jesus, that'll be the answered prayer. But just keep praying. Remember what he's done in the past. Jumpstart your mind. Journal. Read those journals. Have people in your life that can speak truth to you when you're forgetting how good God has been. Build in strategies and disciplines of remembering so you can see the continuity of the Lord's work from the past to the present and to the future. So first, we see the teacher's pedigree. Secondly, we see the teacher's bravery. The teacher's bravery. The author of Ezra provides this character profile of Ezra in verse 6. He says this, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So Ezra had been living in Babylonia, which was a, a city of the Persian Empire, the superpower at that time. And we see that the return of God's people happened in waves. Because you might be asking, why is Ezra there? Fifty-some years prior, people were, were returning to the homeland, to, to Jerusalem. Why is Ezra and some of these temple singers and servants and gatekeepers, why are they still there? Well, friends, the, the return happened in waves. It wasn't all or nothing. It happened in cycles and in waves, and evidently Ezra hadn't been a part of one of those waves yet. He'd been living and serving in Babylonia, and there he's moved to go back to the land of his forefathers to teach. He's described as a scribe here, meaning he's an expert handler of God's word. He knew how to rightly interpret and rightly communicate God's word to God's people, an essential role. Uh, he's called a priest in verse 11. We'll see that next week. He's a scribe and he's a priest. Well, what is he? He's both. There's a lot of carryover between those two roles. As a priest, he would have served as a mediator between God and his people. So a priest is kind of a go-between figure. The priest represents the people before God, and he represents God before the people. He would offer sacrifices for the people's sin to God, and then he would communicate forgiveness to God's people. So he's this go-between, this mediator. That, that's, what he, that's what he did as priest. But priests also had a teaching role, teaching responsibilities. They had to know God's word so they could communicate it faithfully to God's people. And at the time of Ezra, it was the scribes, those who were initially commissioned just to copy God's word faithfully down. They, because of their time in God's word, 
often took on a lot of teaching because they knew God's word. So as time went on, we see priests delegating more teaching responsibility to scribes. Ezra did both of them. He's an expert, skilled in the law of Moses, knew how to rightly interpret and communicate God's word to God's people. Friends, he was good at what he did. That word skilled, it just means able to maneuver and to work complex material and to communicate it clearly. It's exactly what God's people needed. They were desperate for the right teaching of God's word in this moment of their history. And God is the one who sent this skillful teacher, this skillful shepherd. Uh, Friends, we must be grateful for the skillful shepherds that God has placed in each one of our lives in our own histories. Who has that been for you? As you think back on your own spiritual growth and development over however many years it has been, who did God place in your path to teach you truths in a trustworthy manner? And not just teach you, as we will see, model for you what it is to follow Jesus, because those two must be held together. Who are those skillful teachers in your history? Thank God for them. They are a gift to us. Thank God for skillful teachers. They are gifts of grace from God. May we thank God for them. Now, this word skillful here applies to more than just teachers and pastors. It applies to every area of work. For example, Proverbs 22, verse 29. Let me read this to you. Do you see a man or a woman skillful in their work? They will stand before kings. Do you see a man or a woman skillful in their work? They will stand before kings. What is the author of Proverbs saying? Diligence and skill begets opportunity. Whatever it is God calls you to do in your life, do it with excellence. Do it to the best you possibly can. And you will bless people and you will honor God if you do that. Whatever it is God calls you to do. There is no menial work in God's economy. All of it is the service of the Lord Christ. He's the one that we're ultimately serving. So this word skillful points to every profession. So whatever you're doing, do it with diligence. Do it with great care and faithfulness. All of us are tempted towards laziness and slovenly work. It's just a reality. If you're a human, you've got that temptation. Fight it with the grace of God, knowing it is the Lord Christ that you're serving and people that you'll be blessing if you do it with diligence. Faithful, diligent, skillful work begets more opportunity. Do you see a man or a woman skillful in their work? They will stand before kings. Be faithful with a little. The Lord will entrust you with more opportunity. Why do I make note of Ezra's bravery in this section? Where do we see Ezra's bravery in this passage? Let's look again at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. The king grants Ezra all that he asks. What does that tell us? That tells us that Ezra made a big, bold request of King Artaxerxes. 
the emperor of the Roman, the emperor of the Persian Empire. He had evidently asked for something. Like Nehemiah would do 13 years later, he makes a big request of the king for permission to go to Jerusalem to teach, for provision of people to go, temple singers, gatekeepers, assistants, and for material provision as well. Things to adorn the temple, uh, material to, to furnish the temple. He's asking the king for favor, for provision. That's where we see his courage. He, like Nehemiah, approaches the king and asks for provision. He asks for help. It required courage. You see, he had the skill set. Ezra had the ability to teach. He saw the need before him, but it took courage to make that a reality. He had to go and ask the king, someone outside himself, to supply him with what he needed to get there and to be sustained when he got there. He exercised courage. Friends, life as a Christian requires bravery. It requires courage. No significant spiritual work will take place in our lives without bravery, without courage, without fighting the fear of man, the fear of what somebody's going to think. Whether that's sharing the gospel with a loved one, a friend, a coworker, or a neighbor, Life as a follower of Jesus requires bravery. Starting a ministry, reaching out to a neighbor, teaching in whatever setting, whether that's a small group or kids, whatever, it requires courage to step out in faith and to engage your gifts for the building up of others. Life as a Christian requires courage, and it's a courage that comes from the grace of God. Ezra knew that he needed to ask the king for favor, and he went with courage to do so. And the king granted his request. So we see the teacher's pedigree, the teacher's bravery. Thirdly, we see the teacher's integrity. The teacher's integrity in verse 10. The author of Ezra fills out his character profile in verse 10. Uh, and it's this verse where we witness the engine that drives Ezra's skillfulness. Verse 10, for Ezra had, his, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, what do you notice about this description of Ezra? This is so important, so important. There is a discernible progression. There's an order. There's a flow in his character. What do you notice about it? What's the order? What's the progression? Ezra set his mind to study the law of God to do the law of God, and to teach the law of God. That progression is imperative. You can't break it. You study the law of God. You do the law of God. You teach the law of God. What happens when you break the progression? You ruin the witness. Maybe you're here today, and part of your background or part of your present is being turned off by the church, by Christians, by teachers who have been hypocrites. Do you, do you know the origin of the word hypocrite or hypocrisy? It's a theater word. In ancient Greek, it's a theater word. It's designed for an actor who plays the part in a performance. May we not teach like that. 
You see, there's got to be integrity, which means cohesiveness, continuity, consistency between the message of our lips and the message of our lives. And when those are incoherent or dissonant, we malign our witness. We're hypocrites. We're playing the part in a Christian play all the while not living it. And it turns people off from the faith. Study, live, teach. Study, live, teach. Study, live, teach. That's the progression. Don't break it. Don't break it. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. Ezra taught what he practiced and he practiced what he studied. It's an unbroken progression. There's a lot at stake here. We need to feel the weight of the role of teaching. And whether you're a pastor, an aspiring elder, a current elder, a small group leader, a men's D group leader, a women's D group leader, a Beacon Kids teacher, or just a member of the church, all of us are called to teach and model in one way or another. The eyes of a watching world are on Christians. May the message of our lips be consistent with the message of our lives. There's a lot at stake here. Integrity in our witness. Let us not play the part in a performance. Woe unto us. Woe unto us if we're playing the part. And I, I, I want to just offer you, because look, we do this imperfectly. There's only one perfect teacher whose life perfectly matched up with his lips, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here, and you're living a double life, maybe you're leading a small group, or you're teaching kids, or you're doing one-on-one -on -one discipling, and you know your life does not consistently match that up, I just come before the Lord and seek his grace. Tell a trusted friend what you're caught up in. There's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. He forgives, he cleanses, and he will empower you forward on a consistent way of teaching with integrity. Paul says this to his understudy Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persist in these things. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we understand that only the Lord saves people. But Paul is pouring it on. Timothy said, look, watch your life, your conduct, and what you teach, your doctrine. Because when those are held together, you're walking in the way of salvation. Not just you, but you're teaching it and modeling it to other people. Watch your life and doctrine. May the message of your lips be consistent with the message of your life. Live, teach with integrity. So we see the teacher's pedigree, the teacher's bravery, the teacher's integrity. Fourthly and finally, not a character trait of the teacher, but of the Lord of the teacher. The Lord's sovereignty. We see this in verses 6 and 9. What power was behind Ezra? going and moving to teach God's people. Twice over in this passage, we see the power. 
We see the driving force. It's the hand of the Lord. It's the good hand of the Lord. Twice repeated, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. And then again in verse 9, for on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was upon him. Repetition is like a big highlighter in a passage. It is drawing attention to the author's emphasis. What was the driving force? It was the hand of the Lord that drove Ezra to go and teach God's people. Friend, the the hand and the arm of the Lord is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's strength in delivering, his grace in rescuing. It's symbolic of his unparalleled power. Some examples for you to write down of the hand or the arm of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 8 The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Uh, Those are the words of Moses. The Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Psalm 136, verses 12 and 13. To him who brought Israel out from among the Egyptians, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. His steadfast love endures forever. It's the arm of the Lord that delivers the Lord's people. It was the good hand and power of the Lord that drove Ezra to go from Babylonia back to Jerusalem to teach, to restore. God's steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping love drives him to intervene in his people's lives, to get them out of predicaments like Exodus, like the exile, Like needing to learn God's word, he intervenes and he sends through his powerful arm a teacher to go. This steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping work culminates in the new covenant. As God sends us his servant, the suffering servant, in the midst of our own predicament, our own captivity, our own exile to sin. It's the same character of God intervening, working his grace, the strong arm of the Lord always intervening, working rescue in his people's lives. It's God's goodness that drove him, drove his hand to send Ezra, and it's God's goodness that drove him to send Jesus to the cross for us. It's his love that drives God to send servants. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. Notice what sends the Son is the love, the goodness of the Father. Jesus Christ is the perfect teacher, the one whose life perfectly matched his lips, his teaching. Friends, set your sights on this perfect teacher. As I mentioned, I know some of us perhaps have been turned off, or maybe you're a skeptic here with us. We're so glad that you would come. I understand that We as Christians sometimes malign the very Savior that we try to teach. We apologize to you for that inconsistency. But the best message that I could leave you with is to set your sights on the perfect teacher, on Jesus Christ, who will never fail you, who will always be consistent in his teaching and his living. Open God's word and sit under it. Read it. 
your offense is understandable. But look behind, look beyond the sin of imperfect human teachers and see the perfection of Jesus Christ. Fix your eye on him. Explore his word. Study it with all your might. Because faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The night before Jesus' crucifixion, he had his final teaching session with his disciples. And in that night, in that lesson, he was careful to teach them about the significance of his broken body and his shed blood. He taught them the significance of his sacrifice, saying, this is my body broken for you as they took part in eating the bread. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins as they passed the cup around. This was the message that he left his disciples with. This is what he taught them in his final earthly hours. The Last Supper content, the significance of his sacrifice, what was meant by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. This was the lesson of most importance that he wanted to leave his disciples with. And this morning, we fittingly have the opportunity to both remember and to celebrate that lesson from that Last Supper. So if you're a believer here, we want to welcome you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with you, with us. If, if you've not yet come to trust in Jesus Christ, I would just encourage you to, to not partake of the Lord's Supper, but to consider who Jesus is, what he's done, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, that you could come to trust in him as Savior and Lord. In a moment, I'm going to pray. After I pray, take a moment to grab one of those uh, communion cups, and then I'll lead us forward in celebrating together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your provision of your son, Jesus Christ, the master teacher whose life perfectly matched what he taught. Thank you for his sinless sacrifice on a cross, his burial in a tomb, and his triumphant resurrection from the grave. Thank you, Lord, that it is this message that we regularly, regularly teach one another, that we regularly image in celebrating the Lord's Supper. Lord, would you guide us now as we celebrate, as we remember, as we encourage one another's hearts with the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.